You know, the Apostle Paul told us in Ephesians chapter 6 that we are in a war. Not a war against flesh and blood, but a war against a far more powerful enemy, far more intelligent enemy, and a far more crafty one. Sun Tzu said this in The Art of War, All warfare is based on deception. Hence, when we are able to attack, we must seem unable. When we're using our forces, we must appear inactive. When we are near, we must make the enemy believe we are far away. When far away, we must make him believe that we are near. And he's right. Deception is an effective tactic in war. And of any of our enemy's tactics, I think deception is among his most common. We saw that all the way back in the garden. In fact, he's called the great deceiver. He's become a master at distraction, diversion, deception. Drawing our attention away from the key battle in order to get us fighting in the smaller, less important skirmishes. And I believe that's what we are experiencing now. I believe these last several months that that is what is happening. That the enemy is at work to hinder us, to distract us, to divert us from our one priority, the one thing that really matters. You know, I see so much energy being spent, so much effort, so much time on Christians arguing Arguing about the options regarding COVID-19. Arguing about how the government is responding or not responding or being hypocritical or debating about what is true and what is false out there. What is the true science? What is the false science? I see so much time and effort being addressing, are masks effective or are they not? What about social distancing? Is it really helping or is it not? The motives of our leaders. And that is not to say these are not important. I see you wearing masks. That's what we've been called to do. That is, that is fine and good. But I fear that by these arguments, these discussions, these debates, that's consuming so much of our time, it's distracting us away from the important. It's distracting us away from the necessary. And for some of us, the important is distracting us away from the critical. What is it that really matters? What is our priority before God? What is His priority? greatest concern and brothers and sisters i want to use this opportunity i have this morning to remind all of us of the one thing that really matters jesus told us that one thing in matthew chapter 22 so if you could please turn there in your bibles or open your phone apps to that particular passage matthew 22 in this chapter We find ourselves, we find Jesus in the midst of Passion Week, just a couple of days after his triumphal uh, journey, uh, entry into Jerusalem. And Jesus, during this week, as throughout all of his ministry, had not made himself too popular with the religious leaders. He drove out their lucrative temple business that week. He was openly challenging their hypocrisy. And so they wanted to take Jesus out. But the problem was, though he was unpopular with the religious leaders, he was still popular with the masses. And so they hatched this plan. They wanted to ask these questions, ask something controversial to get Jesus caught in the trap. And then incite the crowds against him. Let's pick it up in verse 34 of Matthew chapter 22. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And let's stop there a minute. Some previous attempts 
to trick Jesus had failed. And so the Pharisees, they reconvene. They were one of the religious leaders, one of the groups in that time. And they came up with this final attempt. And so they sent their lawyer to do it. And yes, I have a lot of lawyer jokes in my head right now, right? There's some things even a rat won't do. Um, but I'll refrain. You know, when you see lawyer here, the term lawyer, don't think of those billboards where you have this sort of slimy looking guy with some cheesy slogan on it. Have you seen those? I mean, in fact, I saw one a, a week or two ago. This guy had said on the top of it, just because you did it doesn't mean you're guilty. Call Larry the lawyer. So, yeah, there actually is a sign with that on it. But this guy was not that kind of lawyer. Actually, the word that Matthew uses here is describes a, a one who was an expert, a top-notch expert in the Mosaic law. And so he poses this question to Jesus. The greatest of all questions, really, Jesus, which commandment is the chief commandment? What is the most important instruction command that we've been given by God? And it's a good question, actually. There were over 600 commands in the Pentateuch. The rabbis had identified 613, I believe, and they were constantly debating which one was a priority, which one was more important, which one was the the most important one, which ones carried a, a harsher judgment. And you know, the question bears for us as Christians an even greater significance in considering the fact that there's a thousand plus commands in the New Testament to believers. And so really, we could ask ourselves the same question. What what is the most important one? What is the greatest commandment? If God were to put in priority from the top to the bottom in the list of instructions and commands he's given of the thousand plus commands, which one would be at the top? The question was asked. The crowd around Jesus is quiet. All eyes are now upon him. How would he answer that question? I'm sure many who had heard it were probably thinking, yeah, that is a good question. Look at verse 37. He, Jesus, said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang the entire law and the prophets. Jesus answers this expert in Mosaic law with a quote from Moses himself in Deuteronomy 6.4. It's known as the the Shema. Shema is the first Hebrew word in Deuteronomy 6.4. And it just means to hear, to listen with the implication of responding in obedience. It was the, the Shema was the very fiber of Judaism, one that every Jew would memorize that passage. They would recite it daily. They would have it on their doorposts. They would wear it in a little box on their clothing, and some would even have it on their forehead at times, which is kind of ironic that this law expert will be asking him a question that quite literally was staring him in the face. The answer. Jesus recited a text they knew from childhood. And even though they did know this from childhood, even though Moses gave this command the highest prominence, they still missed it. Because they had gotten so distracted with the minutiae. So distracted with, with this law or that command or this rabbinical tradition or, or that cultural practice or this societal problem. They'd become so distracted by the forest they lost sight of the trees. Again, Satan has been doing this. 
from the beginning of time, throwing up diversions, trying to distract us from the one thing that really matters. And so Jesus here states that one thing very clearly, very simply, and it was not new. This is the most important command, Jesus says. This is the greatest instruction you've been given. In fact, if you were to take all of Scripture and hang it upon something, a statement, it would be this one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. Friends, brothers and sisters, this is why we are here. This is it. And so today, and I don't have a clock in front of me, I apologize, so we're just going to go as, as long as you guys are awake. But I want to consider two questions in response to this text. And the first one is this, what is love for God? What did Jesus mean by that? What did Moses mean by that? And then secondly, why should I love God? Or, or more to the point, what, what will motivate me to that kind of love? So first, just what does it mean? What does it mean to love God? That word love is used in every culture, translate or in different languages, of course. But the idea, the concept of love, it's all over the Bible, over twelve hundred occurrences of a word translated as love. And it's linked to concepts such as kindness and compassion. If we were to do a survey of the Hebrew words that are used for love of the Greek words that are used and translated as love, it would give a very wide spectrum of meaning. All the things from from ideas and thoughts and emotions to actions, to activity and to duty. And in our culture, some define love or use love more commonly as that, that, that how one feels, that the emotions are the critical thing, the emotions for the object which is loved. I love pizza. I love UCLA. I love Lamborghinis. I love Tina. We often use it that way to focus on the emotions. Others define love solely based upon uh, duty, responsibility, that I'm demonstrating love in my actions. And typically we tend to drift one way or the other when we think about this word love. But what is the love Jesus is talking about here, specifically that love for God that he mentions? Well, first notice it is a complete love. Look at verse 37. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Now, scholars have spent a lot of time on this passage, dissecting each of those words, looking for distinctions between them, trying to identify the nuances for each of those particular terms. But I think in doing that, they're missing Jesus's overall point. Yes, these words, heart, mind, soul, at times can emphasize different things, different aspects. But Jesus is using Moses used those words originally to defraud, to, to define the whole person. All of us, every part of us. And notice Jesus says here in quoting Moses, all your heart, all your mind, all your soul. God desires every nook and cranny of our being, all of our emotions, all of our thoughts, all of our actions, all of our words, our schedule, our effort, our affections, our allegiance, our attitudes, our body, our brain, our resources, our time, our life, everything. God wants it all. I see Rebecca out there getting married in a few weeks. Now, Rebecca, uh, 
what if Eli put together his own vows here? And Eli said, uh, you know, you're in the ceremony and hopefully planning to maybe do it here, Lord willing. And Eli, in that special moment in the ceremony, says this, I, I, Eli, promise and covenant before God and these witnesses that I will be your faithful and loving husband five days a week. Or, or, or what if Eli modified the vows a little bit? He said, I promise to be your loving and faithful husband as I provide for you. But, but you know, affection's not my thing. I really won't show any of that, but I, I will make sure to take care of you. Or what if he modified the vows to say, I, I promise to be your loving and faithful husband and I will take you on romantic dates and you will work, you'll take care of the house, you'll provide for everything so I can play video games with my friends. How would you feel about Yeah, she's shaking her head. No way, right? No wife would be okay with those vows, especially on their wedding day. Do we think God is any different? Is he so desperate for, for our attention and our affection that he'll take whatever he can get? Is God satisfied with the leftovers? With a part of us, but not the whole? You know what? I think this passage makes it clear. God will take all of us. He'll take none of us. He will not settle for a lifeless obedience, external action with no internal desire, nor will he settle for emotional uh, expressions with no service rendered to him. God says, I want you to love me with all your mind and with all your heart and with all your soul. It's it's all encompassing. And so, brothers and sisters, I, I really just have one applicational question for us to ponder this morning together and that is this what does your love to god look like what does it look like dutiful obedience devoid of any passion or lots of emotion but no action god wants a complete love and secondly he wants a trusting love a trusting love I want you to listen to what Joshua told the people of Israel toward the end of his life. In Joshua chapter 22, verse 5, he said this. Be careful to observe the commandment and the law which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God. Joshua, Joshua realized that this, that was the greatest, most important thing Moses said. So he's reminding the next generation to love the Lord your God and walk in all his ways and keep his commandments and listen, hold fast to him. And serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. At the end of Joshua's life, he repeats what Moses said in his last days. The the Shema. And again, notice he says, all your heart and all your soul. And Joshua adds to that to hold fast to him. That's the idea to cling to him. To depend upon him. to, To hold on to him like a little child. Who is either afraid or discouraged. How dependent are you upon the Lord? Could you describe, could that be said of you that you cling to him? That you cling to him? How often do you look to his word when you're facing a problem or you need wisdom? What does your prayer life look like? As our brother Mark, who was just up here, likes to often say, is prayer your first response or your last resort? If you're clinging to him, it is the first response. If we say we love God, we will cling to him. We will trust in him implicitly. Above anything else, because a genuine love for God is a trusting love. 
It's a trusting love. It's a complete love. And thirdly, it is an obedient love. Joshua said to love the Lord your God and walk in his ways and keep his commandments and serve him. Loving God is not just trusting in him. It's also acting upon that trust by obeying him. This is so fundamental and it's complete obedience. Joshua said all of his ways. Beloved, don't miss this point. Listen, if Scripture says anything about loving God, it says this. Love for God will be expressed in listening to God, in obeying God. What is it Jesus said more than once? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll you'll do what I say. Could Jesus have been any clearer? If, if I say I love God, then I will love what he loves and hate what he hates. And sin is top of his list. He hated it so much it cost Jesus his life to pay for it. It's a contradiction of the highest order to say I love God and then at the same time not do what he says. 1 John 2, 4 says the one who says he's come to know him and doesn't keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. So let me just say, as graciously as I can, but as directly as I can, if if you're not pursuing a godly life, if that is not the the pursuit, again, I didn't say you've arrived, but if that's not your pursuit, or it hasn't been for a long time, don't say you love God. I mean, what what spouse would accept that? Uh, a husband that's never home, that spends all of his time doing other things, perhaps even being with other women, or, or a wife doing the same thing. What, what, what spouse would allow that, more, that, that husband or wife to come home and say, well, but I, but I still really love you, honey. That meant nothing. Baloney. And yet, how often do we do that to God? In fact, didn't James say to those who are walking disobedience, you adulteresses? Ouch. That's what it feels like to God. Betrayal. He called the people of Israel in the Old Testament who were running after their own ways. He called them prostitutes. Adulterers. Why? Because that's what it is and that's how it felt. Again, I say this. Not to guilt us into pursuing love for God, but just to understand how significant and important it is to him. A true love for God, the kind of love Moses spoke of, the kind of love Jesus referred to when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? That kind of love is a complete love. It's a trusting love and it is an obedient love. And fourthly, it is a passionate love. There's a profound affection that is attached to it. One book I highly recommend. Hard to read in certain places, but highly recommend Jonathan Edwards, Religious Affections. And you know, the thesis of that book is basically this. If you are a Christian, there will be a deep seated affection for God that will produce fruit in your life. He's right. And Jonathan Edwards didn't make that up. It's not something that he, you know, he was an emotional guy. And so he just defined love in an emotional way. No, he was 
Very, he's the same guy that, that preached when sinners in the hands of an angry God. But he also recognized a true love for him, not only is complete, not only is trusting, not only is obedient, but it, it comes with an affection. David said this, Oh God, you are my God, I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Isaiah said this, Indeed, he said, while following the way of your judgments, O Lord, notice obedience mentioned, we have waited for you eagerly. Your name, even your memory, is the desire of our souls. At night my soul longs for you. Indeed, my spirit within me seeks you diligently. Did you hear all those adverbs? Eagerly, diligently, longing. This is not a dispassionate, disconnected, mindless obedience. Oh, God commands it, I just better do it. No, there's a passion behind it. There's an affection behind it. I heard of a teenage girl who was hanging out with a group of her friends at a party, and someone at the party said, hey, let's, let's go bar hopping. But she said, no, my, my parents wouldn't like that. And her friend replied, why? Are you afraid of your father, that your father might hurt you? She said, no, I'm afraid I might hurt him. Listen to what Peter says. In fact, please turn with me to 1 Peter 1.8. 1 Peter 1, verse 8. Peter really captures it here. Peter says these words, And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Peter here speaking to believers, did you hear what he said? In fact, I, I would just ask you, the next 30 seconds, give me your undivided attention. Free yourself from any distraction. I want to read those words again from Peter. Listen carefully, please. Allow God to do a work through this passage. Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Again, brothers and sisters, is that you? Though we do not see him now, do you love him? And is there a joy inexpressible, a greatly rejoiced with a joy beyond words, Peter is saying, a joy that can't be defined, can't be described. It is an overflowing joy. Does the thought of Jesus Christ give you that joy? As we were singing about him this morning, behold our God. Was your heart filled with joy? You know, one thing I've observed over the years in churches, particularly in Bible churches like ours, is a lack of passion. That we somehow have in our minds a notion that, you know, that digging into the Word, expositing the Scriptures, and, and, and fulfilling what God has called us to do, that means we need to take it all seriously and soberly, and that there, we should not be showing emotion, and that for God, agape love means the love of commitment. Yes, it is the love of commitment, but it's an affectionate commitment. It's a passionate commitment. It's a great love for the one who has told us these things and done these things for us. It's not lifeless. It's not emotionless. It's not without passion. 
you know, the man that might express uh, service in his home and, and doing the dishes, doing the laundry, picking up after the kids, um, uh, you know, providing financially for, yet showing no emotion, no affection, no concern. Would you say that he truly loves? Not completely. That's partial. And I think a lot of us are guilty of that with the Lord, myself included. It's one of the main reasons I'm giving you this message today, because I need to hear it. You know, I see this in dull, lifeless singing. Or coming to service late. Or lack of prayer. Or little concern for what God wants. Giving low priority to time in the Word. Low priority to time of fellowship with other believers. Spending more time looking at the speck in another's eye rather than the log in our own. Does any of that reflect an all-consuming love? The kind of love Moses described, the kind of love Jesus said was the greatest commandment in Scripture, to love God with a complete love, with a trusting love, with an obedient love, and with a passionate love. Well, that's not me. I'm just not the passionate type. I'm not the emotional type. But God still commands it. And what He commands us to do, He empowers us to carry out. He doesn't command us to do something we're not able to do by the grace of the Spirit at work in us. So if you are not an emotional type person, then just ask God to help you with that. Ask God to help you with that. Or if you are the emotional person, but you really struggle in the commitment and the carrying out of that trust and obedience, beg God for help in that. Memorize passages that speak of these things. Meditate on them. Allow God's Spirit to work through His Word to affect change in our hearts. Because this kind of love can only happen from a work of God in the heart. We can't naturally generate this. We aren't born with a natural passion for God. We're born with a natural passion for ourselves, aren't we? We don't come into this world with an inclination to love and follow God. We, we come into this world with a desire to love and follow what we want. The Bible says we are all sinners before God, deserving the judgment of hell. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16, 22, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Paul even defined that as an evidence of salvation. If, if you don't love God, then judgment is coming. And so the first step to love God the way Jesus describes it here is to come and admit to him we can't. To confess that we are a sinner in need of a savior to confess that really it's all been all about me, God, and what I want, what I deserve and what I desire, not what you want, not what would honor you, not what would thank you. It is to confess these things It's to admit that we need forgiveness It's to admit that that we stand apart as rebels against a loving and holy and just God needing him to show mercy and to forgive and that forgiveness only comes one way. Through the man who spoke those words. You know, later that week. He was tortured and beaten on a cross. And even worse than that, he carried the weight of the sins 
our sins. He carried the wrath. Because of that, Jesus can offer forgiveness. Jesus can offer a way through the work of the Spirit in your heart as you would put your trust in Him alone, as you would desire to turn from your sins and follow Him, as you would cry out, I I want this kind of love for you, God, and for others. So, God, you need to give it to me. Please forgive me. Please, Please show mercy upon me. And I know I can ask that because of what your Son has done. Listen, please. If any of you have not made that commitment, that's the one thing that really matters right now. COVID-19 could go away tomorrow. Cancer could go away tomorrow. All diseases and afflictions. There could be cures for all these things. We could live average lifespan of 150 years, 200 years. Is it possible? Maybe. But if you live that life apart from Christ and then show up before the throne one day and those words of Paul are given, any who do not love God, let him be accursed. Then the 200 years is for nothing. What have you gained? Jesus said that. If you gain the whole world but lose your soul, what have you gained? So, that's where it begins. This kind of love for God. Just to confess, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And God promises that whoever believes in Christ will inherit eternal life. And with that comes a transformed heart, a new heart, a heart that now has the capacity to love with a complete love, a trusting love, an obedient love, and a passionate love. And I wish I could say that when that takes place at the moment of conversion, you'll be able to love him perfectly from that day all the way in the glory. I wish I could say that. How many of you have achieved that, by the way? Perfect love for God? We still live in these sin-cursed bodies. There will be struggles at times even as Christians. And so that brings us to the second question I want to briefly look at and consider this morning. And that is, why should I love God? What, What will motivate me to this kind of a love? Basically, two things. First, he is worthy of it. And second, because you will find joy in it. You will find joy in it. We will be motivated to love him as he desires when we remind ourselves that he's worthy of it. I'm just going to read a few passages. I'm not going to comment on them. I just want you to listen directly to what the Word of God says. David said this in Psalm 8, 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Isaiah 6, 3, the fiery seraphim that are around the throne of heaven declaring day and night over and over, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of your glory. Micah seven eighteen. who is a God like you who pardons iniquity? He passes over the rebellious acts of his possession. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. Solomon said this in 1 Kings 8, 23. Oh, Yahweh, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or above or on the earth beneath. 
keeping your covenant and showing loving kindness to your servants. David said this in Psalm 145, verse 3. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. And then in verse 8, he says, Yahweh is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all. His mercies are over all his works. The Lord sustains all who fall down and raises up all who are bowed down. Psalm 113, verse 5. Who is like Yahweh our God, who is enthroned on high, and yet who humbles himself to behold the things in heaven and upon the earth? Psalm 89, verse 6. Who in the skies is comparable to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty is like the Lord? A God greatly feared in the counsel of his holy ones and awesome above all those who are around him. O Yahweh, God of hosts, who is like you? Or even the great pagan king Nebuchadnezzar said these words. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Or Moses really sums it up in Exodus fifteen eleven: Who is like you among the gods, O Yahweh? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? Awesome in praises, working wonders. And we could go over many, many more passages that just speak of God, speak of his greatness. His power is beyond comprehension. His patience and mercy are without equal. He has no beginning. He has no end. He knows everything. He sees everything. He is everywhere at once. His love and compassion are infinite. He's more creative than all the artists in the world. In fact, they can only imitate him. He's perfectly holy. Unlike any other person in creation, he's perfectly just, perfectly righteous. He is good and loving. The more we ponder these truths, the more we meditate upon who God really is, the more we reflect upon him, we cannot help but be in awe of him. That's that question. Who is like Yahweh our God? That's a question of awe. Who, you know, as you think, who is like him? That's what prompted David to say these words in Psalm 27. One thing I've asked from the Lord and that I will seek after. What is that, David? That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Why, David? To behold his beauty. And to meditate in the temple. That word beauty has the idea of grace, kindness, splendor, appeal, delight. Beautiful is a good translation. Think about it. As David considered the glory and majesty and, and splendor and beauty of God, he had one thing that he wanted. I just want to watch, look at him. I just want to be there and take it in. No one had to force him to respond that way. No one had to convince him to spend time with God. That was his natural response as he considered who God is. You know, when you're standing in front of the Grand Canyon, no one has to tell you or convince you or argue that you were looking at a magnificent place. If you're at the Niagara Falls, no one has to come up with this logical argument as to why these falls are majestic. If you're standing... Before the Swiss Alps, no one has to tell you, okay, now, you know this is beautiful, right? 
No one has to tell you that. It just is. No one has to tell me to love my wife. No one has to convince me she's cute. I've always thought she was cute. Even with those little gray hairs, honey, that are coming in, you're still cute. No one had to force me to be attracted to her. No one had to logically persuade me of the benefits of loving her. No, I don't do it perfectly. I fall short a lot. But at the end of the day, I love her because of who she is. Listen, the God who made this world is intrinsically, inherently beautiful, majestic, full of splendor, enrapturing. And if you are struggling to love him, you're not spending enough time with him. If you're struggling to love him, you're not spending enough time with him. Love for God is inspired as we meditate upon Him, as we consider who He is, as we dwell upon what He has done. Just as David said, one thing I desire, I just want to be in the temple to dwell upon you, meditate upon you, and look at you. A.W. Pink said this, How little real love there is for God. One chief reason for this is because our hearts are so little occupied with His wondrous love for His people. The better we are acquainted with His love, its character, fullness, blessedness, the more our hearts will be drawn out in love for Him. Ephesians 1, 4 and 5 says this, He chose us before the foundation of the world, and in love He predestined us to adoption to sons through Jesus Christ to Himself. You know, God determined in eternity past, if you are His child, to set His love upon you. When He fashioned Adam from the dust, your name was in His mind. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. And we know that because it reached us. Reached us. Jesus said the greatest command in all the Bible is to love God. With all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our might. To think that God would want anything from us. Let alone Our love staggers the mind. So I should be motivated to love God because of who he is. And secondly, because I will find joy in it. Psalm 43, verse 4. I will go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy. And upon the lyre, I shall praise you. Again, 1 Peter 1, 8. Though you've not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible. Psalm 73, verse 25. Whom am I in heaven but you? And beside you I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And Psalm 16, 11. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. Passion for Christ is not a burden. Love for God is not a chore. Yearning for God is not something that has to be forced. 
It comes when we fix our gaze upon Jesus. It comes when we make time with him a priority each day. It comes when we pray earnestly for God to stir our hearts for this kind of love. It comes when we spend consistent time with one another to help each other grow in our passion for Christ. It comes when we spend time and effort to to read books, to listen to sermons that will give us a greater understanding of who God is and what he has done. And it comes, listen to me, I'm almost done. It comes when we remove every distraction that hinders us from loving God in this way. John Piper said this, the weakness of our hunger for God is not because he is unsavory, but because we keep ourselves stuffed with other things. You ever had that problem at a nice meal? Kind of eating this food and then there's that one dish like, oh, oh man, but I can't eat it. My button on my jeans has popped off. I can't eat it. We do that with the Lord. We stuff ourselves with other things. Just as I said at the beginning, we have a great enemy, a world that is ruled by one whose sole mission is to divert us, distract us, keep us from loving God in this way. He knows the greatest commandment. Which one do you think he's trying to attack? If he can't keep you from heaven, he'll do all he can to keep you from holiness. If he can't keep you from glory, from eternal life, he will try to keep you from expressing love for God as Christ has called for. He wants to distract each of us from the one thing that really matters. From the one who really matters. And so I want to spend, have you spend a moment as I close, just right now, asking the Lord, is there something, God, that is distracting me? I think for all of us, the answer to that question would be yes. Definitely I'll speak for myself. Just ask the Lord to guide and direct your thoughts to what that is. So I'm going to give you a moment just to pray to yourself and ask him that question. God, show me what is it that's hindering this kind of love that you've called me to. I, I want it, but I just I know I'm not there yet. What is in the way? What is distracting me? So I'll give you a minute to pray and then I will close this. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Who is like you, O Lord? Majestic in holiness, awesome in wonder. Forgive us, forgive me, Lord, for being distracted from pursuing and living out this kind of love for you. You deserve it. You desire it, and and Lord, actually, it's it's what you've created us to do, and we find our greatest joy and peace and comfort when we are pursuing and living out this this love for you. As our Lord had so clearly stated, to love with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul. Lord, I pray if there are any here who have not yet bowed the knee to the Savior so that they could even experience what this means to love you. I pray, God, you would be at work. Your Spirit would be at work even now, bringing conviction where needed, opening their eyes to the truth of the Gospel. 
Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here. That God, that you would stir our hearts, that you would use your words, the words of our Lord to to stir us, Lord, to, to pursue this and forgive us if we've been distracted. Forgive us if we have gotten caught up in other things, some perhaps good things, others perhaps sinful things. Lord, you, you deserve all of us, all our being. You have demonstrated your own love toward us and that while we were your enemies, Christ died for us. And you've held nothing back. There's nothing that can separate us from your love, as Romans 8 declares. So, oh Lord, you are worthy of, of our full, complete, trusting, obedient, and passionate love. Do a work in our hearts, I pray. In Christ's name, amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.